Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1947, a farmer in New Mexico found an unidentifiable object in his fields. He said it looked like a flying saucer. First, the military came out and said it was a flying saucer. Then they switched the next day and said it was just a weather balloon. This sparked many conspiracy theories, and people say that they were aliens that came out of the saucer, and they were taken away by the government. After that, witnesses came out and said that they saw alien bodies coming out of the flying saucer. So now, every year, people go back to the site of the Roswell UFO crash, hoping to see an alien. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This. Mister, telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Oh boy, guys. Oh boy. We've got an out of this world story for you. Oh, we're going to have so many space puns. Space pun party. Oh, it's time for our our weekly affirmation. I almost forgot because I was so distracted with the shiny space puns. Don't worry. We'll mix the two. Yes, listeners. You are out of this world. You are astronomically important. You are worlds above the rest. You are all little shining stars. Ground control to major you. You're my favorites. All right. (laughs) So before we get to the story, we do want to run through our little business section. We have a business section? Yes. Okay. What's in it? You know. What? The stuff? The stuff. That's not a business section. That's a friendship section. Friendship. If you want to be our friends, you can friend us or whatever on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod. You can reach out to us on our website at justastorypod.com where we have all of our sources, Sam's artwork, and other info. Links to the merch store. If you want to be a friend who advertises their friendship on their clothing or their coffee mug or their shower curtain. Whatever the case may be, you can find episode artwork on a variety of different wearables, carryables, and houseables. Sure. If you want to help support the show, other than just love, which we do appreciate all the love, um, you can help us out on Patreon. And by signing up, you will get lots of fun stuff like extra episodes, which we will have one related to this episode. Stickers and other fun stuff. And we do appreciate all of that support. We do have some new Patreons to thank. So we would like to send very special thank you and hugs to Christina Spencer and J.S. Tesla. I assume you're related to Nikola. That's awesome. My son was Nikola Tesla for his great American biography day. Yeah, we're great parents. (laughs) And if you get so inspired and want to go leave a rating or review on iTunes, we just sure do appreciate all that. Helps people find us and gives us our 
weekly affirmations. But there's one more way that you can reach out to us. You can call the Urban Legend Hotline, and that number is 512-222-3375. And once you dial that number, you'll reach our voicemail where you can tell us a story. And it can be, you know, an urban legend if you want to be on the nose about it. Yeah, it's kind of the point. <laughs> or a joke, or a scary story, or a weird thing your grandma always used to say. Whatever strikes you. Just call, leave a message. We might use you on the show. It'd be great. All right, Sam, back to the story at hand. At six-fingered hand? Depends on who you ask. Okay, fine. So when I was a kid, I absolutely loved aliens. Yeah, when I was a kid, I was like, mm, it's. I feel like we're in a don't call us, we'll call you situation with aliens, and I don't like this rejection. <laughs> so I was not interested. Well... My friend and I were obsessed, and of course, my mom and I used to watch X-Files. We would camp out at night in the backyard, in our tent, and watch the skies. Did you ever see anything? I'm sure we thought we did. Very suspicious satellite activity. But today, we're going to talk about a very special incident in all of ufology. Or ufology, if you're that guy, and they exist. Or girl. Or girl. Or whatever interplanetary species we're going to talk about roswell the holy grail of ufology the ultimate combination of out of this world aliens (gasps) conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and explanations for all of this fantastical technology that we have today i need a thurman oh you do so imagine one Of course, in the 90s, all of this was super popular. There was X-Files. There were all the documentaries on Fox, (laughs) HBO, etc. And it has really become a a myth of its own. It has, and it's become a major facet of American culture. If you hear Roswell, New Mexico, chances are you will conjure pictures of little green aliens and or flying saucers in your mind. But let's go back. Let's go way back and find out. About the alien crash site. You mean where it all got started? Yeah, of course. All right, so you have to imagine a filter here. (laughs) It's kind of hazy, but it's coming into focus, and things are about to get real. So, on July 8th, this is the story that the AP, Associated Press, runs nationwide. Headline, Flying Disc Details Secret. Roswell, New Mexico, July 8th. The Army Air Forces... Here, announced today, a flying disc had been found on a ranch near Roswell and is in Army possession. Lieutenant Warren Haught, public information officer at Roswell Army Airfield, announced that the find had been made sometime last week and that it had been turned over to the airfield through cooperation with the sheriff's office. It was inspected at Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office at Roswell to higher headquarters. The Army gave no other details. Hot statement. This is the press release from the 509th Army Air Force. Yes. The many rumors regarding flying discs became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office at the 509th Atomic Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, were fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of the local ranchers and sheriff's office in Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. 
Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. The rancher's name and location of his, of his place were withheld. The rumors are true? Well, all of the rumors. Yes, we finally have proof, says... The Army. The Army? And what was the group there? Okay, so they're the 509th. They are the only atomic bomb squad in existence at this time. This is where the Enola Gay... The Enola Gay. The atomic bomb. This is where the plane that dropped the atomic bomb was, was from. He really must have hated his mom. Right? So Charles Tibbetts was United States Army Air Force, and he piloted a plane, which he dubbed the Enola Gay, after his mother, to uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where he proceeded to drop two atomic bombs and, you know, and World War II and create this modern hellscape in which we live. Cool. But that's this group. They're the only atomic bomb group at this time. So they have a lot of... Clout. Cred. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the atomic bomb group. One would think the most highly trained elite group, very used to keeping secrets. Explains why they have like intelligence officers, all that. Well, he was actually mainly responsible for screening people, you know, to get in. Marcel, the intelligence Uh, officer. Very rigorous screening process to be a part of this very elite group of people. Apparently should have screened the press officer a little bit more closely because he just totally told the world that they had a flying saucer. Seems like a poor decision. Well, like if it's if it's true, shouldn't that shit be secret? And if it's not true, what the fuck are you doing? That day in Roswell, in addition to the AP story, which went out nationwide, there was a local report about this incident, and it read, Mr. and Mrs. Dan Wilmot apparently were the only persons in Roswell who saw what they thought was a flying disc. They were sitting on their porch at 105 South Penn last Wednesday night about 10 o'clock when a large glowing object zoomed out of the sky from the southeast, going a northwesterly direction at a high rate of speed. Wilmot called Mrs. Wilmot's attention to it and both ran down into the yard to watch. It was a sight less than a minute, perhaps 40 or 50 seconds, Wilmot estimated. So someone saw it. Right, and this would have been about on June 2nd. When they say they saw mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the rancher said he found the crash site like at least a week before. Well, in subsequent reporting, that timeline's going to get nailed down a little bit better. Mm-hmm. It moves around a lot. Yeah, it does. So the next day, under the headline, Disc Craze Continues, <gasps> Army Discounts, Disc with a K, ah, Ounce, that's clever. New Mexico Find as Weather Gear, Fort Worth, July 9th, AP. An examination by the Army revealed last night that a mysterious object found in a lonely New Mexico ranch was a harmless high-altitude weather balloon. Whew, thank God. Not a grounded flying disc. Excitement was high in disconscious Texas until Brigadier General Roger M. Ramey, commander of the 8th Air Forces with headquarters here, cleared up the mystery. The bundle of tinfoil, broken wood beams, and rubber remnants of a balloon was sent here yesterday by the Army Air Transport in the wake of reports that it was a flying disc. So they got all of the wreckage, Mm -hmm. and they shipped it off to Texas. Yes, where you send things like alien parts. Okay. Clearly. And then they actually had a photo shoot. Photo shoot with aliens? No, with the remains of the the 
balloon. The disc. The disc. Yes, and army officers. So there's actually a photo of Jesse Marcel, who was our intelligence officer from Roswell, who's now gone to Texas with his disc, and he's holding up pieces of tinfoil, or, you know, alien alien technology. technology. And it says that he's inspecting what is identified by Fort Worth, Texas Army Air Base weather forecaster as a ray wind target used to determine the direction and velocity of winds at high altitude. Initial stories originating from Roswell, where the object was found, had labeled it a flying disc, but inspection at Fort Worth revealed its true nature. But he's holding it up, and it's like looking kind of like, huh, what do you know? Look at this. Look at this. But that goes out, and everybody's like, cool, a weather balloon. Another headline from that day says, disc mystery is solved for three hours until Roswell find collapses. That was quick. That was quick. Now here you're going to start seeing some things. Really? Yes. Instead of this being the mystery, we need to look at this construction carefully, right? Okay. Disc mystery is solved for three hours until Roswell fine collapses. The disc here is not the mystery. Okay. It's the solution. Oh. And then it doesn't pan out. Hold that thought. So Roswell, New Mexico, July 8th. A rancher's discovery of a strange object, first identified by Army Public Information Officer as a flying disc, touched off a temporary flurry of excitement across the saucer-conscious nation today. It was a good three hours after the first official announcement before the Army Weather Officer burst the bubble. Aw, ruins everybody's fun. So on the 9th, also, this story ran in many papers. It's another AP story. Headline, Ranchers, sorry about disc story. So this is when we find out who the rancher is. Yes, some unscrupulous papers had already reported his name, but it was supposed to be being withheld. They were really good at this secrecy thing. Everyone was so good at secrets. It is amazing that World War II came off the way it did. <laughs> Few reports of saucers, subheadline. Roswell, New Mexico, WW Brazil, the rancher credited for a time with finding the nation's first flying disc, is sorry he said anything about it. The 48-year-old New Mexican said he was amazed with the fuss made over his discovery. If I find anything else short of a bomb, it's going to be hard to get me to talk, he said Wednesday. Brazil's discovery was reported by Lieutenant Walter Hott, Roswell Army Airfield Public Relations Officer, as being one of the flying saucers that have puzzled residents of 43 states over the last several weeks. Later, however, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, Commanding General of the 8th Air Force, said Brazil's find was merely a weather radar target. Brazil related his story. While riding the range on his ranch... Yes, I I, can picture it. I assume on horseback. Of course. 30 miles southeast of Corona, New Mexico. On June 14th, he sighted some shiny objects. He picked up a piece of stuff and took it to his ranch house seven miles away. On July 4th, he returned to the site and gathered more pieces. Brazil hadn't heard anything about flying disc at the time. Several days later, his brother-in-law, Hollis Wilson, told him about the disc reports and suggested that this might be one. I went to Roswell and I told Sheriff Wilcox about it, he continued. I was a little bit ashamed to mention it because I didn't know what it was. I asked the sheriff to keep it kind of quiet, he added with a chuckle. I thought folks would kid me about it. I didn't hear any more about it until things started popping, said Brazil. Lord, how that story travels. So the Roswell Daily Records article from that day that is titled, Harassed Rancher Who Located Saucer, Sorry He Told About It, has a little more detail 
In this story, it says he and his eight-year-old son were about seven, eight miles from the ranch house when they came upon a large area of bright wreckage made up of rubber strips, tin foil, and rather tough paper and sticks. At the time, he was in a hurry to get his round made, and he did not pay much attention to it. But he did remark about what he had seen, and on July 4th, he and his wife and a daughter went back to the spot and gathered up quite a bit of debris. The next day, he first heard about the flying discs, and he wondered if what he had found might be the remnants of one of these. So Monday, he came to town to sell some wool, and while there, he went to see Sheriff George Wilcox and, quote, whispered kind of confidential-like that he might have found a flying disc. Good job keeping that lid on it, Sheriff. This is when they then contact the military. According to Brazil, they simply could not reconstruct it at all. They tried to make a kite out of it but could not do that and could not find any way to put it back together so that it would fit. Then Major Marcel brought it to Roswell, and that was the last he heard of it until the story broke that he had found a flying disc. He did not see it fall from the sky and did not see it before it had been torn up, so he did not know the size or shape it might have been. But he thought it might have been about as large as a tabletop. There were no words to be found anywhere on the instrument, although there were letters on some of the parts, and considerable scotch tape and some tape with flowers printed upon it had been used in the construction. Brazil said that he had previously found two weather balloons on the ranch, and that what he found this time did not in any way resemble either of these. I am sure what I found was not any weather observation balloon. So, in the Austin American, they have a little bit more information about this radio interview that Ramey, General Ramey, had done on local radio. So it didn't go out nationwide. It wasn't picked up by a major broadcasting network. But the Statesman kind of has a little bit more of the transcript in their reporting. Now, the headline here, ballooned up story. Nice. Well nice. done, you. Yeah. And then subheadline, ain't a disc, just a ray wind high altitude sounding device, declares General of Battered Object Picked Up in New Mexico. The object found in New Mexico was badly damaged. The balloons measure up to 50 inches across, but expand greatly as they ascend. The Air Force officers reported that they sometimes reach 60,000 feet. The kites and stars are generally more than 5 feet in diameter. The balloon and the object it carries are technically known as ray-wind high-altitude sounding devices, popularly known as weather radar targets. General Ramey said of the object found in New Mexico, it definitely was a United States Army device. Plans to fly the object to Wright Field for further investigation were canceled. A public relations officer said it was in his office and it'll probably stay right here. General Ramey spoke over a local radio station, WBAP, Tuesday night after the 8th Air Force headquarters was flooded with queries concerning the object. In his broadcast, he said that anyone who found an object they believed to be a flying disc should contact the nearest Army office or Sheriff's office. Later, he said that the weather device could be mistaken for almost anything when seen from the air. I don't say these devices are what people have called disc, he said. There's no such gadget as this disc, known to the Army at least, this far down the line. Warrant Officer Newton said that there were some 80 weather stations in the United States using this type of balloon. Clears it right up, right? It's a weather balloon. Is it? Is it a weather balloon? It is. It says it's a weather balloon. No. Okay. It's not. It's not a weather balloon. It's not. Well, it's a very special balloon. No, it's a secret, super secret spy balloon. It's a super secret spy balloon, which is maybe as much fun as aliens. I'm super into spies. So the military had a program called Project Mogul. 
Now, its classified purpose was to try to develop a way to monitor possible Soviet nuclear detonations with the use of low-frequency acoustic microphones placed at high altitudes. They had no other way to monitor the nuclear activities of a closed country, mm-hmm. which the Iron Curtain had fallen, up. Mm. Risen? Risen? Risen. Sure. Been dropped? Dropped. Like and, a you know, bomb. a little right. later, they would use like seismic activity and stuff like that. But at this point, they had no way of monitoring. So scientists had discovered an acoustic duct between the troposphere and the stratosphere as a result of a World War II era analysis of globally propagated sound waves produced by the volcanic explosion of Krakatoa in 1883. Okay. Cool, right? Science is fun. So in June and early July of 1947, numerous NYU balloon flights, NYU was the college that was experimenting with it. Research partner. Yeah. They were launched from Almogordo Army Airfield in New Mexico. Now, some of these flights consisted of very long trains containing up to two dozen neoprene-sounding balloons, having a total length of almost 600 feet. That's a big balloon. Now, Charles Moore was one of the scientists on the project. And he has come out recently once the Project Mogul was declassified. Mm -hmm. And he can even, using, you know, atmospheric data and looking at the flight patterns, even tell you the exact balloon that it was, that it was NYU Flight 4. They had large octahedral objects, the top left and bottom middle, that were radar reflectors. Mm -hmm. So that's the big metal kind of pieces they found. And those were used for tracking. There were also several small aluminum rings for handling the lines. Mm-hmm. So that explains some ring kind of material that's mentioned sometimes. So Moore points out now that the famous photograph of Marcel... In the office, like holding it up, grinning, kind of. Yeah, is obviously one of the radar reflectors. Mm-hmm. And if you look at them two side by side, it definitely looks like it. I want to believe it's a balloon. There's my want to believe moment. Super secret spy balloon. Super secret spy balloon. But why was there pretty flower tape? I distinctly remember pretty flower tape. So this strangely marked tape with hieroglyphics or writing or strange symbols, as you'll see, was actually the type of tape that was used on the radar reflectors. Because it was fancy? Because it was made by a toy factory. Fun! Oh my god, super secret toy factory contracts with the fence. I love it. Well, as you know, they would go to any kind of small companies to get them to make these certain little secret parts. Mm -hmm. And so apparently in this case, they went there. You know, they went to a bra manufacturer to make special pressurized suits for spy planes. And, you know, they'll just go to a small company that they could pay to keep quiet Mm -hmm. and keep confidential and so they had a toy company do it with this case and so it was purple flowers that is fantastic at the time project mogul did come to mind for several of the people who were investigating this crash right the people that were in on the classified information right and a man was later interviewed named trakowski and he reported to colonel marcellus duffy in july of 1947 now, he'd been transferred to Wright Field, and he stated... And that's where the wreckage went after it left Fort Worth. Yeah, even though they were like, we're not going to send it to Ohio. They sent it to Ohio because it was a super secret balloon, and they wanted to make sure that it hadn't been like sabotaged or messed with. 
Now, Duffy had formerly had Tchaikovsky's position on Mogul, but had transferred to Wright Field. Tchaikovsky relates, Colonel Duffy called me on the telephone from Wright Field and gave me the story about this fellow who'd come in from New Mexico and woke him up in the middle of the night or some such thing with a handful of debris and wanted him, Colonel Duffy, to identify it. And he just said, it sure looks like some of the stuff you've been launching from Alamogordo. And he described it and Duffy says, yes, I think it is. Certainly Colonel Duffy knew enough about radar targets, radio signs, and balloon-borne weather devices to make that call. So, you know, we keep reading in the papers and all the articles we've read that this solves the disc problem. Mm-hmm. This solves the disc question. Yes. Disc craze continues. Mm-hmm. What is that about? Well, well, everybody was seeing disc. What? Yes. And you see that in the UP versus AP reporting. So this is the original reporting that went out on the UP wires that came out on July 8th. The mystery of the flying saucers took a new twist today with the disclosure that the Army Air Force has recovered a strange object in New Mexico and is forwarding it to Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio, for examination. Announcement of the find came first from Roswell, New Mexico, Army Air Base, near where a saucer, and they've got it in scare quotes, was found three weeks ago. Army Air Force headquarters later revealed that a security lid had been clamped down on all but the sketchiest of details of the discovery. Army Air Force spokesman would say only that the saucer was a flimsy constructed kite-like object measuring about 25 feet in diameter and covered with a material resembling tinfoil. A telephonic report from Brigadier General Roger B. Ramey, commander of the 8th Air Force at Fort Worth, Texas, said the purported saucer was badly battered when discovered by a rancher at Corona, 75 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. Ramey scoffed at the possibility that the object could have attained supersonic speeds credited to the flying saucers allegedly splotted in recent weeks. Wait, what? Flying saucers? Yes, many of them. Recent weeks? Yes, many of them. Is this an invasion? What is going on? Yes, there's an invasion. And everyone's like, we finally have one to study. Good. Now we can understand why everyone in America is seeing flying saucers. The Army Air Force commanders in New Mexico refused to permit the object to be photographed on the grounds that it was high-level stuff. Although Ramey indicated he was not attaching a great deal of importance to the find pending an investigation. So, you'll recall that headline, Disc Craze Continues. In the article, there are four disc stories, and this is the front page of the paper. What? So, there's a photo with a caption, Many saw them, but what were they? From all parts of Kentucky, many persons reported they saw three luminous objects flash across the northern sky from east to west about 10.35 p.m. Al Hixenbaugh of Louisville, Kentucky, Times photographed above two of the three objects near that city. And then they have a local story. Many local residents report mass flight of disc over Corsicana Wednesday morning, the largest mass flight of skimming saucers yet reported, was the cause of much excitement in West First Avenue neighborhood Wednesday morning. At least two or three hundred discs, which appeared to be about the size of dinner plates and made of tinfoil, traveled at a slow pace over the area, moving south toward Oakwell Cemetery. Mass flight so far the first reported, as far as could be determined here. And then you also have the story of the disc writer Boyle, who escapes a Martian and tells the tale. Editor's note, our Hal Boyle, returning from his two-day absence, insists he is the first man to come back alive. 
from a trip on a flying saucer. You may take this story or leave it, but we are turning down his expense account for $2,800, which is what five cents to a mile comes to after 48 hours on his 1,200 mile an hour conveyance. Is it a joke? It is. It's a joke. It's a joke. But it's on the same page with the not joke ones, we should point out. So nowadays we go, oh, flying saucers, this must be an alien invasion. What did people think this was then? Was that the prevailing thought process? Well, no, apparently. 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 There was a poll conducted in August of 1947 by Gallup Polling. They were around. Part of them. Question. Dear American. Yes. <laughs> what do you think these saucers are? So, no answer, I don't know, was... 33%. Imagination, optical illusion, mirages, etc. 29%. Hoax. 10%. U.S. secret weapon, part of an atomic bomb, etc. 15%. That's probably where my money would have been. That Me too. 100%. Weather forecasting device... Three percent. Okay, those are the sheeple. Sheeple. <laughs> Russian secret weapon. One percent. Searchlights on airplanes. Two percent. Other explanations. Nine percent. Wait, we're missing something. Right. So it adds up to more than a hundred and two, more than a hundred percent of your keeping track because people were, were allowed to give more than one answer. Uh, okay, but were they aliens? Well, maybe in the other explanations, I'm not sure. Sure. Um. So Gallup reports. Guesses ranged all the way from practical to the miraculous. Among the latter was a woman citing biblical text who said it was a sign from the world's end. A man in the West thought the disc were radio waves from bikini atomic bomb explosion, while another man saw them as a new product being put out by the DuPont people. A few people smelled publicity or an advertising stunt, while others felt sure that the saucers were, after all, only some kind of meteor or comet. So people's guesses were everywhere. Yeah, but they were not really from outer space. That's so interesting. I mean, you do have to remember what time period this is. Right. It's much more likely that it's an enemy plane coming to explode you than it is, you know, something from space. 1947. I mean, or it could be, you know, one of our secrets. I mean, we just, you know, the gate just let a big secret out of the bag. Right. Blew up half Japan, you know? It's not hard to think that it was one of those two things. So, you know who thought it was something along that line? Who? Orville Wright. Part of him. He did some of the bikes, right? Initially. (laughs) And then he went on to, you know, figure out how to fly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Him and his brother. Ah. Do you remember when we were in D.C. and we saw, like, the Orville Wright building? We're like, that's bullshit. And then we finally saw, like, the matching building across the street. Yes. It was like, oh, there's the Wilbur Wright building. Fine. So this is uh, also on July 8th over the AP wire. Wright wraps saucers as war propaganda. Orville Wright, who invented the airplane, said today that the flying saucer craze was a government campaign to get us into another war. The 75-year-old scientist says it is more propaganda for war, to stir up the people and excite them to believe a foreign power has designs on this nation. He said it was dished up by the government to support the current State Department campaign to get us into another war. Wright criticized the publicity given to the saucer stories and said there was no scientific basis for the existence of the phenomenon supposedly seen by hundreds. War propaganda. War mongering. Not that crazy. <laughs> no, I kind of, I'm like, you get it, sir. 
But I can he has got like a total get off of my lawn feel right here, doesn't he? He kind of does. And there were other scary headlines in the paper all the time. Center discount story of stolen A-bomb files. Oh, yes. These are, these are not just in the paper. These are beside the oh, Roswell yeah. story. That's oh, yeah. where I found them. Missile found by rancher in New Mexico, quote, turned over to atomic group and flown to headquarters. And there were even more stories. So, good news, guys. This is also on a page with the Roswell story. It is, again, one of a collage of saucer stories. Yeah. So, Associated Press, America's flying saucer jag real today. Stiff necks and Google eyes were the order of the day. Sky watching a new profession. North Carolina joined in the disc parade. For the first time, discs were whirling through the atmosphere over Asheville in the western North Carolina and over Greensboro and Raleigh in the north central portion. There's a parade? Oh, yes. Hooray. And then there's a photo. Coast Guardsman Frank Ryman reported he photographed a flying disc near Seattle and said he thought that the white dot indicated by an arrow in the photo was it. Enlargement 29 times. It's literally like a little white dot. So then again... We have the story of Boyle. This time they're a little more clear that it's fiction. Maybe it starts out the following manuscript by Hal Boyle, who was last seen two days ago, reading a copy of Tom Swift on the steps of the New York Public Library, was found in a beer bottle in a perambulator in Central Park. The empty bottle apparently had fallen from a great height. So this is where we learned that Hal Boyle dropped his story from the flying saucer as a message in a bottle into Central Park. And that's how it was recovered. So yeah, not completely clear that it's fiction, but it's sillier. But like the Ruskies or whatever, whoever's flying it, I mean, they got beer. That's cool. They might have had a good time. (laughs) I never, never questioned where he got the beer bottle before. Now I'm like... More intrigued. Well, at first I thought it meant like he was, they found him like wasted, like drunk. No. You know, in Central Park, in the bottle. No, they found his story. Yes. yes and now I want to know where the bottle came yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. And he's act- he's got some pretty decent hosts. <laughs> he does. They have drinks. They're hospitable. No probing. <laughs> They're never seen. <gasps> what is a good alien romp without a little probing? I mean, really, what self-respecting alien is not probing people? Shit kind. Then there's another photo of an attractive air stewardess with a dashing pilot, and he's holding up a plate and pointing to it. And it says, they look something like this. Captain E.J. Smith, United Airlines pilot of Seattle, holds a dinner plate as an illustration for stewardess Tony Carter of Chicago while describing the much-discussed mystery of flying disc, which Smith and his crew reported seeing on a flight from Boise, Idaho to Portland. Smith, shown above, as he arrived at the municipal airport in Chicago from Seattle. And then we also have this. Juggler offers novel answers for saucers. Oh. Washington, July 8th, AP. A novel tongue-in-cheek explanation of the flying saucers reached President Truman today. A West Coast professional juggler telegraphed the chief executive that the saucers were some that he used in his act, and they simply got out of hand. Well, that's a good explanation. Good as any. Witty. And there's also good news. Yes. A song. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm not singing this time. So the headline is, It's Happened. A song about flying saucers. Seems like it's time, right? It's called The Flying Saucers, and it's a, quote, hillbilly tempo, and guaranteed to give any respectable jukebox the jitters. The song, copyrighted Mills Music Co., goes like this. If you see a saucer a-flying through the air... 
Don't you get excited, folks. There's no need to scare. They've never will explain it scientifically. It's only my Matilde a-throwing things at me. Oh, no. Flying saucers, flying saucers. They've been seen in all the 48. All the 48 what? Uh, states? Because we don't have to at this point, right? Just clearing that up. Flying saucers, flying saucers. They must have a Matilde in every state. Oh, so another explanation of jugglers. Angry wives. Angry wives, good reason. Oh, and then under one of the headlines for Roswell, suppose disc is a dud, proves weather gauge, just like those things found in Ohio. Ah. And the subheadline on it is, Find shiny junk. Uh, and then searchlights set off disc rumors over East Texas. Flying disc broke up a couple of ball games and caused the uproar over a wide area of East Texas last night. But they were found to be nothing more than the reflection from the clouds of beams of a pair of powerful searchlights at Tyler. A pair of newspapermen, a grocer, and a couple of telephone operators collaborated to track down the disc after residents in this section had swamped the switchboard operators with reports and queries concerning the spectacle. A few venturesome souls took off in airplanes to chase the saucers. Brave. Man finds shiny steel disc to claim rewards. Rewards? Rewards, I say. So Chicago, July 8th, the same day the Roswell crash is reported. Flying saucers were a dime a dozen today, but a resident of Olwean... Olwean? Olwean. Olwean. Claimed to have found one in his front yard worth $3,000. Why was it worth $3,000? We'll get there. Lloyd Bennett, wholesale tobacco salesman, displayed a shiny steel disc about six and a half inches in diameter. Oh, okay. And an eighth of an inch thick. He said it was a flying disc. I think it was a frisbee. Mr. Bennett said he heard something come crashing through the trees last night, and when he awoke this morning, he said he found the saucer. I intend to notify the army authorities, and I'll file a claim for the rewards being offered, he said. Rewards totaling $3,000 have been posted for the capture of a flying disc. Three separate groups or persons have each put up $1,000. Nice. I'm going to find a flying disc. Right? So that's another reason that this craze is going on. So let's take a minute and go with Orville Wright's idea or, you know, some other people that are like, maybe it's a secret government weapon or maybe it is part of an atomic bomb. Or, or maybe it's propaganda. Or maybe it's, you know, a foreign country. Maybe it's disinformation. Maybe it's, you know, maybe the government's behind it, basically, is what we're saying. So in October of 1947, a memo went out by Air Force saying an alleged flying saucer-type aircraft or object in flight approximating the shape of a disc has been reported by many observers from widely scattered places. This object has been reported by many competent observers, including U.S. Air Force-rated officers. Sightings have been made from the ground as well as from the air. This strange object or phenomenon may be considered, in view of certain observations, as long-range aircraft. Capable of high rates of climb, high cruising speed, possibly subsonic, and highly maneuverable and capable of being flown in very tight formation. For the purpose of analysis and evaluation of the so-called flying saucer phenomenon, the object sighting is being assumed to be a manned aircraft of Russian origin. Oh, no! And based on the perspective thinking and actual accomplishments of the Germans. So the... The the Ruskies sold the Nazi technology, is what they're saying. Yes. Okay. So Walter and Reimer Horton were two German self-taught aircraft engineers. That sounds 
terribly dangerous. It was, but they developed some really important aircrafts for the Nazis. For the Luftwaffe. Yeah, a large intercontinental bomber. And they were also developing the flying wing. Okay, so this thing's huge. And it looks like the biggest boomerang in the history of the world. And it's about 130 feet long. Or its wingspan is 130 feet is probably the better way to say it. And it is like a boomerang that you sit in and fly like a jet. Right. And it was designed to be kind of long range. So it wouldn't take up too much fuel, Mm. which was always their problem. They would go out, they'd fight for like five minutes, and then they'd have to go back to base. Mm-hmm. So they thought that these were Soviet flying wings, either built with stolen plans or actually designed by the Hortons directly helping the Russians. Mm. But like anybody would do that, like anybody would steal Nazi technology or, you know, have German officers secretly working for them on defense projects. Right, because um, we did. (laughs) So, you know, Operation Paperclip was the American side of the rush to steal as much Nazi technology as possible. Right. You know, in the months after D-Day. And of course, the Russians did the exact same thing. Which is terrifying. And so... From an intelligence perspective. Exactly. And so these people knew that. (laughs) You know, this Mm. is a top secret document. And their fears were well-founded. And there were rumors, of course, going about that the Russians were planning on building an 1,800-ship fleet flying wings. And that's the boomerang one. The boomerang. And you can see how from below that would look like a disc. Yes, because they would fly very, a lot higher too. So it was mostly concerned for the flying wing. So the Hortons had been experimenting with these kind of all-wing aircraft since 1933. And there was this other aircraft that they built. In 1943, the all-wing and jet-propelled Horton HO229 was designed by the Hortons and kind of sold to the Luftwaffe, and they gave them half a million Reichs to start building the prototype and start trying to get this thing to fly. So they swept each half of the wing 32 degrees in an unbroken line from the nose to the start of each wingtip, where he turned the leading edge to meet the wing trailing edge in a graceful and gradual tightening curve. There was no fuselage. They were going to keep the fuel in the wings. Mm-hmm. No vertical or horizontal tail, and with landing gear stowed. And they made it a twin-engine jet-powered craft. So this is the one that looks like Fritz Lang's battering. It looks like a UFO. It yes. looks a lot like the UFOs and Independence Day. Mm-hmm. It's me. insane what this thing looks like. And I'm telling you, like the, the Smithsonian's acquired it. Yeah, the Smithsonian has one because General Patton's army found all the prototypes in April of 1945. So the Smithsonian does have one on display. At the Boeing hangar. Oh, at the far one, not the, the one, one in Washington. Out, yeah. But it has these the two swastikas on its like little bat tail fins yeah, thing. Right. And it is it strikes fear in my it's heart when I see that thing. thing. It looks like something from Captain America. You know, like with Red Skull would have this. Yeah. I mean it and it did fly. It just never flew well. They didn't get mm, they didn't have time it. to perfect it. Yeah. And people died in the you know, testing. But you know, like I said, Patton's army had invaded 
long before they had had the chance to perfect it and put it into didn't service. They, didn't they find like some of them in caves and stuff? So they found um, a large amount of the rocket research mm. that was hidden in caves. So this is all very Batman, I'm you telling you. a fantastic fictional tale about Operation Paperclip. May I recommend <laughs> Michael Chabon's newest book, Moonglow. Pause, go read it. Pause, go read it. It's one of my favorite writers. So there was a flying saucer-like vehicle that had never gone into full production. Now, a few years later, in the 50s, the Brits and the Canadians were working on their own flying saucer called Project Y. Because why on earth are they doing it? Why not? Ah, Sorry. Sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Sorry. Bad joke. Sorry. And that kept the CIA on their toes because they were worried, well, first of all, why are they building this without us? I mm-hmm. thought we were friends. That we had a very special friendship. What happened? And that's our hat. Guys, stop You're messing around with our hat. Throwing our hat. And also, they were like, if they can develop it, then the Russians can develop it. Mm-hmm. So they were keeping a close eye on it. And it also never really fully made. It hovered. That we know of. Wow. Who needs Thurman? So one of the projects that we worked on using tech and or scientists from Project Paperclip was the V2s. Those are the rockets. Mm-hmm. And then we started working on another two project. Without Von Braun. Right. And that was the U2s. No the relation U2s. to Bono. No, unfortunately. Or fortunately? Fortunately. All you need is love in a spaceship, right? I actually heard him say that once. <laughs> so in the early 1950s, the U.S. Navy and Air Force were sending out low-flying aircraft on reconnaissance missions over the USSR, but they were, of course, in constant risk of being shot down. So Eisenhower approved the secret development of a high-altitude reconnaissance aircraft. The U-2. The U-2. And guess where they built it? In the desert. Yes. Where the aliens live. Area 51. (laughs) Area 51. Top secret. Spooky. So U-2 testing began in July of 1955, and immediately reports came flooding in about unidentified flying object sightings. So in the mid-50s, airlines flew between 10 and 20,000 feet of altitude. Military aircraft flew at 40,000. The U-2 was flying at 60,000 feet. So really, there is no human processing schematic that is like, that's probably one of ours. Oh, yeah, definitely. It, like, it, it's totally foreign. It's 20,000 feet higher than yeah. the military yeah. seems to be. And the early ones were silver. Good. <laughs> before they painted them black. So later, the Air Force and one of their investigations, the Blue Book investigation, which we'll talk about later, were able to discount a lot, more than half of the unidentified flying objects in this time period as U-2s. So in that area, they also start developing Project Oxcart, which became the SR-71 Blackbird, and then developed more things. And they developed the Stealth Fighter, Stealth Bomber, all that fun stuff. It really is fun. Like, they look like science fiction. I can't believe those exist. And those are your tax dollars at work. Yay! Ah, uh, but we don't know that because it's a black project. It's a black project. So we watched a documentary. It was a Nat Geo documentary on Area 51. It was surprisingly informative. Like we thought we were about to engage in some serious silliness, but it was actually really good. They talked to a lot of former test pilots and people who had worked security or various positions at Area 51. 
in the past. And one test pilot was talking about the time when he accidentally, whoopsie-daisy, crashed an ox cart. Oops. Serious oops. And he ejects, he's okay, but they have to recover it. And he talks about the incredible lengths that the military goes to to make sure it's all recovered. Because at this time, we were not the only people with super-duper spy planes. The Russians were super-duper spying on our super-duper spy planes. Well, and they had the satellites. And they had the satellites. And they knew the satellite georotation. And at the certain times, they would have to move everything inside. And then they would... Move everything out. At one time, they found that they had a drawing of one of their spy planes, and they couldn't figure out why. And then they realized that they could see the shadow of the plane. If they were using thermal imaging, they could see where the cool spot was, where the plane had been blocking the sun. Exactly. So they started using paint to draw different types of silhouettes on the runways. (laughs) Crafty bastards. Anyway, so I just thought that was really important important point when secret technology is damaged in flight u.s government yeah. really does lose their shit collect it all get it out of there mm-hmm. every speck of it and they don't so much go to the press and be like hey sorry that was top secret thing that just you know happened and we uh you know we're gonna come clean about it because the public deserves to know like they don't do that right Even in like the 80s, they would have foreign planes like Soviet MiGs and they would use those um, to test out their capabilities and kind of test out different strategies to like fight them, we know, in the air. And so there's all kinds of super secret military exercises going on in the area and they're not going to tell you what's happening. But I'm curious. And my other favorite story from that documentary was the guy who, for the duration of his employment at Area 51, uh-huh. commuted back and forth to his house and told his wife he was a TV repairman. And she bought it. It's a good wife. <laughs> right? Very trusting. So now leaving the world of super classified government technology. Yes. Let's go back and look at our accounts that we're getting from this time. If they're not U2s, just say. Well, they weren't here. They were in the 40s. Yeah. If they're not Horton Who's or whatever. Yes. They're not, you know, some kind of secret government airplane, which the government says is a secret government, super secret spy balloon. But that couldn't account for everything. No. And this has got to be one of my least favorite explanations, but probably the most plausible. So let's go back to our newspapers, our primary sources. Yes. So on July 9th, the UP reports, flying saucer reports fall off to a trickle. Rebuke reputedly given by Army Air Force to Roswell Base for balloon sensation. The mysterious flying saucers all but disappeared Wednesday. Every report that one of the discs had been found was proved false. And the numbers of reports from persons who claim to have seen saucers in the sky dropped to a trickle. Army Air Force's headquarters in Washington was reported to have delivered a blistering rebuke to the offices at the Roswell, New Mexico Air Base for announcing Tuesday that the flying disc had been found on a New Mexico ranch. The disc turned out to be remnants of a weather observation balloon. Now in here they do describe a couple of those failed findings as well. Oh, really? Yes, a 16-inch aluminum disc equipped with two radio condensers a fluorescent light switch and copper tubing found by F.G. Harston near Shreveport, Louisiana Business District was found to have been the work of a prankster. Oh, no. Police believe the prankster hurled the gadget over a signboard and watched it land at Harston's feet. Nice. 
And then they say, saucer-eyed sky gazers on Wednesday night reported a crop of flying disc from various compass points near the Pittsburgh area as the national discussion reached a tempo between the sublime and the ridiculous. So seeing how these fall off, right? Like how we go and we go and we go, we're getting more and more and more reports and then like we find one and then we're done. Yes. Oh. Does that resemble the arc of any other phenomena we've seen? Hmm. Like... Let's see, there's like a few reports, one report that really gets a lot of media attention, get a lot, and it just falls off. It's kind of like the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, no? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's kind of like mass hysteria. It's not kind of like mass hysteria. I know, I just hate calling things that, because it's such a like, mm, it's like, the, it's all a dream explanation in movies. So in a single two-week period in the summer of 1947, the UFO problem was laid in confusing disorder before the American public by means of banner headlines and wire station stories in profusion. So in Project Blue Book, report on unidentified flying objects, this condition is defined in Air Force terminology as a flap. And it's a condition or a situation or a state of being of a group of people characterized by an advanced state of confusion that has not quite yet reached panic proportions. So it's a flap. A flap. It's a flap. An episode of mass hysteria. It's a bit of an episode of mass hysteria. Which I just did not realize that there were so many flying saucer or flying disc reports around this. No, I started to realize it when I was pulling up articles about Roswell and it was like, we thought we'd solved it, but it just turns out to be a disappointment. I'm like, wait, how is this the solution? Solved what? And then I went back and looked and there are a bajillion reports about flying saucers. And in case you're concerned about the two to three hundred... That were seen in Corsicana. Yes. They were later found to be rodeo flyers from the Bear Club that were dropped off by an aircraft when it came to refuel. They were flyers to go to the rodeo, like promotional material. Oh, like flyers, like paper flyers. Yes. Oh, okay. That's amazing. Cowboys from outer space. We're going to have a lot of that. (laughs) Cowboys and aliens will be a theme here. But yes, so it's mass hysteria. It, you know, is a few... Isolated reports, followed by an onslaught, you know, uh, saturation of the market, if you will, of that kind of story, reaches a crescendo point, and then just disappears and becomes a few scattered reports. And it might be that the media loses interest as much as the people telling the stories. I think it's some of it, some of it. And with falling media attention. People get less interested in telling the stories. But we know that Roswell was not the initial incident that sparked this flap. No. So what was that? So the first report of a flying saucer over the United States came on June 24th of 1947. So Kenneth Arnold, a private pilot and a reputable guy, was helping out with a search looking for a downed plane around Mount Rainier. When he saw nine objects glowing bright blue white flying in a v formation traveling at what he estimated to be over a thousand miles an hour which is unheard of at the time oh yeah he said the first thing i noticed was a series of flashes in my eyes as if a mirror was reflecting sunlight at me i saw the flashes were coming from a series of objects that were traveling incredibly fast they were silvery and shiny and seemed to be shaped like a pie plate What startled me most at this point was that I could not find any tails on them. He compared their motion to a saucer if you skip it across the water. 
Why is one skipping saucers? That seems incredibly expensive, like cost prohibitive. Sounds like something you do after a divorce. I think your wife would be very mad at I you. Know. Like that, like that song. So with that, him saying the saucer thing, that's where the term comes from. Okay. So this is our first report. That's our first report. In the first two weeks after Kenneth Arnold's Mount Rainier report, the press reports and the American papers were in the hundreds totaling up to 850 reports following the initial Arnold sighting. That is insane. I'm a little more comfortable calling it mass hysteria now. Wow. Now, of course, this is not the first incident of people seeing unidentified flying objects. What? Now, just one year before this 1947 wave, within Northern Europe, there were hundreds of observations of ghost rockets. Okay. And now we've all heard of the Foo Fighters in World War II. Yes, not the band. Very different thing. So Foo Fighters were like these usually luminescent tails that would attach themselves to military craft um, and sort of follow them as they fought. Uh uh It became kind of its own sort of lore within the Army Air Force groups during World War II. Yeah, yeah. And so, now with all of those things happening, now there was another incident very similar to this, but not at all as well. In 1896. Yes. Hold on, I've got to get on my penny-farthing bike and bone-rattle myself on over. Were there airplanes? There were no airplanes. There yet. were no air. Okay. The man had not reached flight. But aliens had. This was years before Count Zeppelin had created his first dirigible. Yeah, you say Count Zeppelin invented a dirigible, you say. Yes. Mm. That sounds so made up, I have to tell you. But, but these great airships were seen in the sky over America. First in flight. So on Tuesday, the 17th of November, 1896, it was a dark and stormy night in Sacramento. So far, so good. Now, they may have been reading the paper where they saw a quoted telegram from New York stating that someone would leave the eastern metropolis on Friday and arrive in the west two days later. How? Well, the Southern Pacific's trains could not do that. It would take four or five days. Mm Mm-hmm. So this was probably noticed. Now, the sender declared that the transportation would be aerial. Fantastic. So this had to have got people thinking. Mm-hmm. Any case, between six and seven o'clock that night, hundreds of people on the streets noticed, quote, an electric arc lamp propelled by some mysterious force coming from the northeast and traveling southwesterly. Where was it? Flying over Sacramento. In the sky. In the sky, in the sky is the answer. In okay. the sky. It is a mysterious airship. Got it. But we just went over how man had not mastered flight. I'm very confused. It was moving slowly over K Street and could be seen for most of an hour, rising and descending to avoid roofs and steeples. The airship fluctuated from 50 to 2,000 feet above the ground, swaying as it traveled across the wind. It was cigar or egg-shaped. Depending on Uh, who you ask. It may have had wing-like propellers or fan-like wheels revolving rapidly, with a dark and tall but otherwise indistinguishable mass on its top and a doubly powerful arc light at its bottom center. And the observers noticed a crew. They were shouting, laughing, and singing. Quote, Not the whispering of angels, nor sepulchral 
mutterings of evil spirits, but the intelligible words and merry laughter of humans. Several people who shouted up an inquiry as to their destination were answered, San Francisco before midnight. Old chap. They said old yes, chap. I think so. And of course, this was reported in the papers, as I've been quoting. But it must not have been a very fast mystery airship. Well, they were merrymaking. They probably all got drunk and had to wake up and reroute in the morning. Because it wasn't until a few days later when it appeared in San Francisco. Okay, that's not midnight, but we'll take it. One may imagine it may have had time for the story to travel. Um, yeah, there's that. So that same evening, George D. Collins, a prominent lawyer, contacted The Call and the San Francisco Chronicle, claiming that he represented the vessel's inventor. said, it is perfectly true that there is at last a successful airship in existence, and that California will have the honor of bringing it before the world. I saw the machine one night last week. It's made of metal, is about 150 feet long, is built to carry 15 persons. It's built on the aerophane system. What and is has, that? I don't know. <laughs> there were no airplanes yet. I don't know. Okay. And has two canvas wings, 18 feet wide, and a rudder shaped like a bird's tail. The inventor climbed into the machine, and after he had been moving some of the machinery for a moment, I saw the thing begin to ascend from the earth. The wings flapped slowly as it rose. Is his client... <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci? Maybe. And then faster, as it began to move against the wind. The machine was under perfect control all of the time. The inventor found during the trial trip that his ship had a wave-like motion and made him seasick. It is this defect that he is now remitting. <laughs> there's no Dramamine either. Nope. Oh, but there's a little bit of like, little opium. I think there's a lot of opium in this story. In another six days, it is his intention to give the people of San Francisco... A chance to see his machine. He will fly right over the city and across Market Street. Well done, old sport. Cannot wait to see you. Yeah. Well, um, he he said he made it up like the next day. Again, again, we have the giant report, and then we're like, it's a weather balloon. Yuck, yuck, yuck. So you had reports from so many people, reputable people, seeing it. Mm. Of course, policemen saw it. I saw the light, and I'm satisfied it was attached to an airship. I saw the light. An attorney recalled the light seemed to be attached to some dark object. And the mayor... Oh, no. Previously dependent upon the accounts of members of his staff, now personally had seen, quote, lights carried by an airship. Good. He saw it pass over Alcatraz, going through the Golden Gate, skirting the clubhouse, and using its beam for 10 minutes on the seals at Seal Rock. (gasps) That's not allowed. This is not nice. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So the next night, two inches of rain fell on San Francisco. Yet beneath the clouds, the mysterious visitor reappeared. Hundreds of people gathered on street corners to catch a glimpse. But it turns out pranksters had launched five gas balloons in the early evening. And many thought they had seen an airship. Oh. And many papers around the country weren't buying it, including the Humboldt Times. That the Humbug Times, you say? They reported that San Franciscans had gone daft over the flying machine. Insults were just better. So the last salvo in the editorial war was fired between William Randolph Hearst's examiner and William Randolph Hearst the call. (laughs) On Saturday, November 28th, the San Francisco examiner attacked the airship story as emanating from drunkenness, while the New York Journal joyfully announced that the man had conquered the air. It's so good. 
But sightings did not stop in California. There were sightings all over the country of this airship. I mean, almost every state was seeing this airship or another one of its kind. Come, Josephine, on my flying machine. When you want the truth, you must go to Texas. Urban legends. We got some. We got them in Texas. So the Dallas Morning News reported on April 17th of 1897. So the following year, Dallas Morning News is on the case. About six o'clock in the morning, the early risers of Aurora, Texas, were astonished at the sudden appearance of an airship, which had been sailing around the country. It was traveling due north and much nearer the earth than before. Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order, for it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour and gradually settling toward the earth. It sailed over the public square, and when it reached the north part of town, it collided with the tower of Judge Proctor's windmill and went into pieces with a terrific explosion, scattering debris over several acres of ground, and wrecking the windmill and the water tank, and destroying the judge's flower garden. Not the flower garden. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one on board, while his remains were badly disfigured. Enough of the original has been picked up to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. What? Oh yes, the pilot. He was picked up. Oh, they found the body, and he was... Not of this world. Not of this world. Now, I would like to remind you again of the date. It's 1897. So the pilot is not removed for government study. Aurora is the tiniest of tiny towns in northwest Texas. Right. So a U.S. Signal Service officer went to investigate and was quoted as saying that he gave his opinion that the pilot was a native of the planet Mars. Probably so. Probably so. Papers found on his person, evidently a record of his travels, are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered. The ship was too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or mode of power, but it was built of an unknown metal, resembling somewhat a mixture of aluminum and silver. The pilot's funeral will take place at noon tomorrow. What? Yes. They, they're going to bury... The alien. The Martian. Yes. Oh, Okay. Christian burial. Well, that's nice of them. Right thing to do. The correspondent's name is given as S.E. Hayden, and he's a local businessman. Now, the pilot's body was interred under a gnarled old oak tree, as you do in Texas. This is said to be on the cemetery's south side. And there was a single stone placed to mark the grave, and it had a hieroglyphic inscription, which was reflective of the writings found on his person. Now, there's a historical marker, which is my favorite. Like an official historical marker. Yes. Right outside the cemetery. And it informs us, The site is also well known because of the legend of the spaceship that crashed nearby in 1897. And the pilot, killed in the crash, was buried here. So we have an alien burial site. Yes. This is the best alien story. Of all the alien stories, this is my favorite. We're just simple country folk, but we'll give him, we'll give that man a burial because it's the right thing to do. The right thing to do. So word got around in a small, small town. They said he was a dangerous man. No, they didn't. It's a Martina McBride song. So people claimed to have found the gravestone in the 70s, and later when they returned, it was gone. <gasps> now, there's more to this story. It's been embellished and accentuated over time. No way. Yeah, the, supposedly there's like an armed guard put guarding the grave of and, because people were trying to go dig up the alien. 
Did they dig out the alien? No. But have, this is proof. This is proof. Alien. Jacob, this is Texas. This is small town Texas, and you have to have permission from the next of kin to dig him up. Now, unless you're going to get in touch with his next of kin, you better keep your paws off my damn alien. You think she's joking? <laughs> no, that's actually what happened. That's true. So no wreckage was ever found, and no similar ship was ever reported. Now, we don't get any kind of abduction in this story, of course, because that's not going to come for years, but we do get the basic template of like the Roswell crash. Yes, this is the template that you will see over and over again. And it is present here and it is repeated in the 40s and it continues to repeat. So throughout the 40s and 50s, every few years, there would be a new rash of sightings. Now, this would get pressed in the local paper, just like it always did. A few days, it would go away. People would read it. They'd go, oh no, laugh, whatever. And go on about their business. Now, on April 7th of 1952, Life Magazine released their issue, Marilyn Monroe on the cover. What a dish. That's right. Like a saucer. That's right. (laughs) Now, just above Monroe's left shoulder was a cover line touting a different story. There is a case for interplanetary saucers. Come again? Have we visitors from outer space? So in the article, they reviewed 10 recent UFO sightings and concluded that they could not be written off as hallucinations, hoaxes, or earthly aircraft. Cool. So this Life article marked the first time that a trusted mainstream magazine had given credence to the theory that UFOs might be alien spacecrafts. So let's go back again to the cover image. It's a a lovely photograph of Marilyn. Of course. So I'm guessing, like, every Tom, Dick, and Harry picked up a copy of that Life magazine and brought it home with the groceries. One can assume. One can assume. If they were grocery shopping, they probably weren't grocery shopping. (laughs) The Life story was big news. It was covered in more than 350 newspapers across Mm -hmm. America. And soon, the number of UFO sightings reported to the Air Force skyrocketed from the month before in March to being 23 to April being 82 79 in May to 148 in June. Good Lord. I'm sure the Air Force is like, thank you. Thank you. By mid-July, they were getting 40 reports of UFO sightings a day. Mm -mm. That's too many. Now, this includes a rash of UFO sightings over Washington. No. Over two July weekends in 1952. Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. Including a formation of disc-shaped lights suspended over the Capitol Dome. No. We've seen Independence Day. We know where this is going. Exactly. Even in July. Dozens of people on the National Mall claimed to see this. And there was even, they even sent out jets to check it out. Okay. Well, I guess it's understandable. So, headlines. Saucer outran jet. Pilot reveals the Washington Post. That's from the Washington Post. Yes. Wapo. Jets chase DC sky ghost. New York Daily News. Area what's its buzz DC again. What's its? You heard me. Okay. As rumors spread, President Truman demanded to know what was flying over his house. <laughs> get off of my lawn. This is when you get the jet fighters. So, of course, the federal government. Denied it was any kind of UFO or anything mm, like that. Mm. As they're wont to do. Things moved on. Now, there was this one movie producer. Okay. Charles Schwer. Okay. 
he was a big fan of clipping out news articles and kind of keeping like a little idea book. A gimmick book. Yeah. That's what Bill Finger called his uh, little notebook he carried around to scribble ideas for Batman in. Yes. So that's a free fact you get here. So now Charles Swear went on to produce Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Like that title. Such a great title. It's an amazing title. Really. I'm sad I didn't come up with it. So this is one of the movies that came out in the flying saucer craze and sci-fi craze of the 1950s. Okay. Starred Hugh Marlowe playing a top-level scientist working on the space program. And Joan Taylor as his bride. His bride? His bride. Okay. Flying saucers appear. They demand a meeting with the government. You find out that they are from a destroyed solar system. And they've come to take our planet. Not cool, guys. Yes. So basically the plot for um, Man of Steel. (laughs) Kind of. So one of the reasons that this movie has gone down in the books as one of the greatest sci-fi films of the time is not the plot. It is the effects. I've got a guess. What's that? Ray Harryhausen. So Ray Harryhausen, who's one of the, or is the best stop motion animator. Ever. Ever. Who did... Jason the Argonauts, Clash, Clash of the, the Titans, etc., etc., worked on this film. And he created the smooth gray spinning discs of the UFO with a little laser beam that would come down from the bottom. and could, Like a tractor beam? Well, it was like a laser. Like it would shoot people. Oh, no. That's boom, much boom, worse boom. than a tractor boom, yes. beam. Okay. And one of the iconic scenes from the movie is the flying saucer crashing into the Capitol Dome and crashing into the Washington Monument. Stop it. And Ray Harryhausen said, I ended up with the saucer crashing into the Capitol Dome and knocking over the Washington Monument. I'm glad to see they still stand today. (laughs) (laughs) And in the movie, they also have uh, Foo Fighters. Oh. Which they refer to as Foo Fighters. It's like this little ball of light that's kind of spying on them Mm. um, in the kind of aerospace lab they've got going on. So very attentive to current lore. Yes. And also you get start getting that visual codification. It is becoming codified. It is like it's where we're seeing that saucers come from outer space. We're we're getting that link hammered home. Yes. And we are also getting our visual iconography that we're going to hold to for the next century, probably. Well, so this came out in 1956. Now, there were movies with aliens and flying saucers before this. Like what? Now, most notably is The Day the Earth Stood Still. Okay. Which came out in 1951. So all this is after Roswell. Oh, definitely. So this is not what's causing it, for sure. No, 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 no. But this is definitely adding to the continued fervor. And interest. Yes. These two movies could not be more different. And they're separated five years of time. In The Day the Earth Stood Still, also starring Hugh Marlowe. Wow. (laughs) In Alien Lands, he's come to bring peace to the people of Earth. But he sees how terrible we are. And he tells the people of Earth that they must live peacefully or be destroyed, saying, Join us and live in peace, or pursue your present course and face obliteration. So, gonna go out on a limb here and say that's especially resonant in 1951 because of things like, you know, the Enola Gay dropping an atomic bomb 
a few years earlier. Exactly. Um, Pearl Harbor, etc. We have seen global cataclysm. Yes, we were on the doorstep. Of, of self-annihilation. Yes. And so we're very nervous because we know that our frenemies are developing technology we're not entirely comfortable with. We know that we're developing all kinds of shit for war and we're really not looking forward to doing another sequel. You have to remember we were in World War One, war to end all wars. Then along comes World War Two. We're back in it again, just a generation later. No one's happy about this. And it seems like we're just going to repeat this cycle ad nauseum until we blow ourselves up. Right. And but just five years later, of course, the Cold War was going on in 1951. That's the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. But it is in full force. Right. And so we might need to fight the Russians, you guys. We might need to, to confront that enemy. They could invade. Yeah, we know they got some Nazis and stuff. We would never do that. And they can invade like these flying saucers. With a technology we've never seen before. And demand to see our leaders just take over our country. Make us all communist. Whatever. It's terrifying. Ask Joe McCarthy. It's a, I think it's so interesting to see just how those movies evolve. Kind of the classic films. Of course, there's all the silly B-movies that came out at the time in between as well. But these are two that are kind of held up as two of the best movies that came out at the time. And sci-fi, as we will so often mention on the show, is such an amazing mirror. Like, I love to look at sci-fi stories because I feel like they tell you as much about history. They do. As reading a history book. No, they definitely do. Because you see the concerns of the public, you know, Joe Q. Public, John Q. Public, whatever his name is, you know, coming to the fore and being, you know, all the fears and anxieties are played out on screen and we're offered a possible resolution. And, you know, in 51, our resolution is like, stop blowing shit up. (laughs) And in 56, our resolution is like, they're going to destroy all of it. Yeah, and in 56, how they solve the problem is they invent a new weapon and take those damn things down. So Cold War is what you're saying. Yeah. Arms race. Arms race. Cool. Which started in World War II. Scientists, military, had to get together and create these new weapons of mass destruction. And it would just continue because these faceless invaders could come at any time. Fun fact. Yes, Screenwriters for the film were George Worthing Yates and Raymond T. Marcus. Raymond T. Marcus is a pseudonym of Bernard Gordon, who had been blacklisted. Because he was he was suspected of being a communist. Of course. And he wrote this, this film about how to defeat the invaders. Yeah. Okay. America. So interestingly, this movie has a really weird kind of credit. It was suggested by... Suggested by Donald Kehoe. Okay. The producers wanted to take Kehoe's book, Flying Saucers Are Real. Cool. And they told him they were going to make a serious documentary about UFOs. Which movie? Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Don Kehoe sounds like Don Quixote. So obviously that did not happen. He was outraged, demanded that his name be removed from the film credits, but it is still there fun so who's don kehoe and why does he know that flying saucers are real well he was a pilot with the marine corps uh-huh he accompanied charles Lindbergh on his one of his flights across the u.s and after Lindbergh's solo flight across the atlantic and he began to have an interest in ufos beginning with the 1947 ufo craze okay 
And he came to believe that they were from outer space. Uh-huh. And he wrote several books about it, including Flying Saucers Are Real in 1950 and Flying Saucers from Outer Space in 1953. And he created a group, the National Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which sought to persuade the Air Force to investigate UFO sightings. So that's NICAP. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before publishing these books, he was already a writer. Oh, good. He had a few pulp sci-fi publications, including four stories and weird tales. This guy has a very similar career trajectory to L. Ron Hubbard and is making me nervous. <laughs> Which, of course, Weird Tales is the preeminent um, sci-fi fantasy magazine at the time. So Kehoe wrote a lot of air adventure stories for Flying Aces and had some superheroes in them. Really? Including Captain Philip Strange, referred to as the Brain Devil. The Brain Devil? And the Phantom Ace of G2. Oh my goodness. He was an American intelligence officer during World War I who was gifted with ESP and other mental powers. He also had Richard Knight, who was a flying ace that had lost his vision and kind of had like Daredevil-like powers. Like Daredevil, the Marvel superhero. Dude, you your copywriting should have been like very profitable. Right? Like you just, you missed it by this much. Yeah. <laughs> you know that that guy in that comic was definitely referred to as Dick Knight. Yes. <laughs> You know it. So in 1950, he'd been kind of investigating all these UFOs for years. He had a lot of military connections. And True Magazine. Oh, I love True Magazine. The man's magazine. I I don't think you're allowed to read it. I do. I have for the show before. In January of 1950, released an article, Flying Saucers Are Real. Mm -hmm. This is what expanded into his book. Okay. So he goes over many flying saucer stories. Mm Mm-hmm. So Roswell? No. Okay. Other stories. Better stories. He's like, that's nothing. Now, the article kind of ends with, it is the opinion of true that the flying saucers are real and they come from no enemy on Earth. It is also true's opinion that Air Forces and Project Saucer are doing a serious, important job to safeguard American security. What's Project Saucer? It is one of their projects to investigate it. Oh, early, early okay. So I like that he gives him that attaboy that like you're doing such a good job investigating. Yeah, he's a military man. He says true accepts the official denial of any secret device because the weight of the evidence, especially the worldwide sightings, does not support such a belief. It would seem wiser if space visitors are suspected to tell Americans the truth. Having survived the impact of the atomic age, we should be able to take the interplanetary age when it comes without hysteria. The idea of space travel is not nearly so fantastic as our present swift planes would have seemed to George Washington and other early Americans. So Keyhole wanted the government to come out and release the information. Mm-hmm. He thought the American people needed to know. Okay. And he continued to lead that fight for the next several decades. Oh my God, he's a truther. <laughs> So the government was investigating all of these reports. So one of the major projects was Project Sign, and it began out of the Technical Intelligence Division of the Air Material Command at Wright Field. Okay, right, where the the balloon was shipped, or the saucer, or the whatever. Right, the Roswell wreckage. So Project Sign began its work on January 23rd of 1948, although it First, they were very fearful that the objects might be Soviet secret weapons. But they soon concluded that they 
that they were more easily explained and not extraordinary. Almost all of the sightings stem from one or more of three causes. Mass hysteria and hallucinations. Hoax. Mm -hmm. Or misinterpretation of known objects. Okay. Which literally went through each of those. But the report recommended continued military intelligence control over the investigation. And they did not rule out the possibility of extraterrestrial phenomena. They're like, sure. But really... It was the Ruskies they were worried about. Mm -hmm. So they continued to collect and evaluate UFO data, and the project became known as Grudge. Oh. I know. Well, good news. It later became Project Twinkle, so we can all be happy again. Wonderful. They concluded the UFOs did not threaten U.S. security, and they recommended the project be reduced in scope because the very existence of Air Force official interest encouraged people to believe in UFOs and contributed to a war hysteria atmosphere. Mm. And the project was terminated December 27th, 1949. But with increased Cold War tensions, the Korean War, continued UFO sightings, etc., etc., they restarted the project up in 1952. And that was known as... Blue Book. Project Blue Book. The Bible for early ufologists. Yes, they became much more systematic in their collections and... They released reports between 1960 and 1968. Classified reports, of course. Oh. Now, Captain Edward J. Ruppelt is credited with coming up with the term UFO to describe the aliens Mm -hmm. or the alien spacecraft. Or the unknown spacecraft. He thought flying saucers was clumsy. Okay. So in the 1950s, you had mounting reports of UFOs over Eastern Europe and Afghanistan so, of course, they were worried about... Uh, the USSR. Yeah, of course. They were worried that they had top secret super saucers. They were going to come destroy the Capitol building, as seen in Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Exactly. Weren't you paying attention to that documentary? So, in 53, there was a panel, the Robertson panel, that was established just to review everything. Like, they spent a few days looking at mm-hmm. it, just reviewing everything. And they concluded... That there was no evidence of a direct threat to national security. And there was no evidence that they were extraterrestrials. But they were worried that this could be kind of like disinformation. Mm-hmm. Or some sort of plan by the USSR to either create hysteria. Mm-hmm. Or to collect information about military programs in the kind of revelations that would come out when some kind of event occurred well that would have been very very smart and and bad and bad and bad (laughs) i'm admiring the spy craft and damn the consequences so in 56 ruleport the head of operation blue book publicly revealed the existence of the panel and donald kehoe set in and his group spent years trying to get them to release this information Uh uh-huh they were sure the cia was covering up all of this information about aliens and UFOs. The CIA was covering nothing up. <coughs> MK Ultra. What? What? Keo specifically said the activities of the U.S. government are responsible for the flying saucer sightings of the last decade. We've already mentioned President Truman having his like, somebody tell me what's flying over my house moment while he wagged the newspaper in his bathrobe, I imagine. Very right brother of him. But in 1966... 87 students at Hillsdale College in Michigan saw UFOs out of their dorm windows. Oh, no. Terrifying, right? Well, at the time, Michigan Representative Gerald Ford 
Future president. Future president demanded a, quote, full-blown investigation by the House Armed Services about these UFOs seen by the college students in his district. And he was the House Minority Leader at the time, and he did get an investigation, but it lasted about an hour and 20 minutes. Oh, good. And all they did was take statements from the Secretary of the Air Force and Blue Book officials who were like, it's probably fine. And that concluded that episode. But let's continue with our presidents versus the flying saucers theme. Oh, I see this movie. <gasps> Me too. I know exactly how great it would be. Middling. <laughs> Shut up. So in 1969, governor at this time, Jimmy Carter. Former president Jimmy Carter. Former president Jimmy Carter uh, is, is in Georgia being governor. And he's preparing a speech to be delivered at the small town Leary. In Georgia. And he saw a self-luminous object in the western sky. And he reported the elevation angle and other details about the sighting to NICAP, which is Kehoe's organization. And they reviewed the data and concluded that what he'd seen was the planet Venus, which that day was precisely in the position that Carter specified. He's quoted as saying, it was the darndest thing I've ever seen. It was big. Very bright, and it changed colors. It was about the size of the moon. We watched it for ten minutes, and none of us could figure out what it was. One thing's for sure, I'll never make fun of people who say they've seen unidentified objects in the sky. Oh. But the truth is, Jimmy Carter's never going to make fun of people, period. He's just the nicest human. Now, in addition to these, these presidents who saw UFOs, a large number of the reported sightings could be traced to aircraft, either balloons right. or actual planes. And here's a keen example of this phenomenon in, in working action here. An elderly woman calls in, says, I have seen flying saucers, and I need to report it to the Air Force. And they, she said they were flying in formation, and the investigating officer said, ma'am, what did they look like? And she said they looked just like jet fighter planes. Hmm. <laughs> so Kehoe and his group and others were putting a lot of pressure on the government. So Project Blue Book did put out a very sanitized mm. version at the time that eliminated any reference to the CIA and avoided mention of any psychological warfare potential in the UFO controversy. Now, there continued to be public pressure, so the Air Force decided to get some kind of outside person to look through all this stuff. Yeah, in Air Force magazine, they referred to it as removing from the neck of the Air Force the albatross of UFOs. So they put that albatross on Dr. Condon, who was a physicist at Colorado and former director of the National Bureau of Standards. That sounds very important and right? official. And of course, they include that little, if anything, had come from the study of UFOs in the past 21 years. And he recommended that Project Blue Book be discontinued saying, on the basis of present knowledge, the least likely explanation of UFOs is the hypothesis of extraterrestrial visitation by intelligent beings. So Project Blue Book was concluded on December of 1969. They had recorded 12,618 sightings, and 701 were unexplained. Why? Aliens. Oh. Or they were just like sketchy reports that they yeah. could not <laughs> investigate thoroughly? Okay. 
So the Air Force that would eventually release a report, they pointed out that what was later characterized as the UFO wave of 1947 began with 16 alleged sightings that occurred between May 17th and July 12th of 1947. Although some researchers claim that there were as many as 800 sightings during that period. Interestingly, the Roswell incident was not considered one of these sightings until absent from this UFO wave of 1947 is our our lonely little Roswell incident. So sad. But it's also not mentioned in Project Blue Book. It's also not mentioned in Project Sign. It's not mentioned in Project Grudge. It's not even mentioned in Project Twinkle. What the hell? It's nowhere. This is the landmark case. This is it? Government cover-up. Obviously. Definitely. Definitely. So why are we talking about it right now? Well, someone was smart enough to put two and seven together. And get 12. Exactly. And his name, dear listeners, fair listeners, is Stanton Friedman. Now, he is, in my my own personal opinion, a scullyless molder. He wants to believe. He does. He does so hard. And you need, you need Scully. Or Mulder's just a cranky pants sitting in his basement with his feet up. Yeah. They used to do softcore porn. Ah, I forgot about that. Now I remember it. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and then he did it again with California. Yeah, that, that I saw. I was not impressed. Anyway, so this guy did not do softcore porn that I know of. And I oh, hope please. to God he didn't. Please. <laughs> No. So he is a nuclear physicist. That part's true. And he studied at the University of Chicago. And he had years of industrial experience working on nuclear programs with General Electric, Westinghouse, and TRW systems. He also worked on the Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft. Okay, so this is not just some crackpot. No, this is. (laughs) This is not your run of the mill tinfoil hat. Yeah, he's a, he's a smart guy, at the least, guy. at the least. So I began tracking him through newspaper accounts in about 1968. A little exercise in dramatic irony here. I know who and what Stanton Friedman becomes to the world of ufology now. And I wanted to see what he was in the beginning. So nuclear physicist working at NASA, or at least Contracting, for NASA. Yeah. So I went back and I found all the old newspaper articles I could, and I have distilled them down to some fine points for you. Yay. So in 1968, from the article, UFO buff short on answers from the Hartford Current, Stanton Friedman speaking before the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers at the Connecticut Yankee Motor Inn. Nice. Came to the meeting armed with several scientific degrees quite a variety of nuclear-oriented jobs, and an armload of data on UFO observations. But the fact remains that, though impressively knowledgeable on the available facts and possible explanations, the facts are insufficient to support Friedman's belief that the Earth is being, being visited by intelligently controlled vehicles whose origin is extraterrestrial. The article from 1968 points out some weird things about the data that he's collected. Yeah. He says that there are no sightings between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. Observations seem to occur in five-year cycles. The first recorded sighting took place in June of 1947. New Mexico has the highest numbers of sightings. It's like there was a secret base flying secret airplanes around there. Weird. There's an increase in sightings when Mars is closest to the Earth. And of the... 2,200 sightings explored by Project Blue Book, 
20% remain unexplained. So the paper concludes, their, meaning aliens, existence is within the stretch of the imagination, but Friedman failed Friday night to give evidence that it is any more than that. But that didn't dissuade Stanton Friedman. Oh, no. Oh, no. See, a year earlier, he'd announced to the Pittsburgh papers, based in Pittsburgh, that he wanted to launch a hotline. Oh, that's a good idea. Right. We should do that. First, I know. If you want to call your alien sighting into the... Just a story hotline, we will take it. We will all kinds of take it. He says there's simply no one to report sightings to, no one who will investigate a report instantly and give it fair-minded consideration and protect the observer's identity if he wishes. The AP reports that he wants to set up a 24-hour answering service so that anyone who spots a UFO can call a number and get a hearing. And if necessary, investigators will be flown to the scene at once. Big plans. Now, a year later, 1968, hotline is in working order. Yes. Yes. So he's dubbed his organization the UFO Research Institute and has a hotline. And according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, he also has Geiger counters, tape recorders, and lots of cameras. If anyone sees a UFO within 200 miles of Pittsburgh, they should call us at 319-2766. Yes, I'm giving out that number. Don't know if it's still active. And if the situation warrants, a trained scientist will be dispatched to your location any time of the day or night. He wants to believe. He He, wants it so hard. He wants it so hard. And he, as a scientist, or really any any other researcher, this is true in a variety of fields, should know better than this. Like, how does he not recognize that he has a theory in search of the facts? Boy, does he. Now, in 1971, he begins lobbying people all across the, the nation to lift the laughter curtain. Like laughing about aliens? Mm-hmm. And he's also aping lifting the iron, iron curtain. curtain. Mm-hmm. He is very hip to the political analogy. He wants people to get over it, basically. He's like, we should be over this, especially since we've walked on the moon ourselves and we Stop know you can go into space. Oh, it's mean. And he was already pretty sure that the government was holding out on him and the rest of the UFO community at this point. He says... You know, he's, like I said, very hip to the political analogy. And he dubs himself the Ralph Nader of UFOs. I don't know what that means. Ralph Nader was a big, like, pusher of the U.S. government to release information and also to, like, regulate things like his biggest accomplishment with seatbelts. Yay, Ralph Nader. Click it or ticket, motherfuckers. Um, But he also says that he is not the Billy Graham of UFOs. So he wants to be a respect. Respectable UFO researcher. Sorry. (laughs) Stop. Lift the laughter curtain. I can't. I'm trying. He wants everyone to know, in 1971, prestigious, influential people such as government officials, science authorities, and members of the press refused to step on the pro-UFO bandwagon because of ignorance, the laughter curtain, and an unwillingness to use knowledge of technology. He cited a study by by Industrial Research conducted in April of 1971, which found more than half of the respondents believed in UFOs. 76% of people said that they do not believe that the government is telling all it knows. Oh, no. The government's keeping secrets from us. But where could he have gotten this idea? Hold your horses. He says it's a deception on their part. Now, 1975, he is using the term cosmic Watergate. Exactly. Exactly. He's quoted in 1975, the cosmic Watergate is being treated like the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, but progress is being made as more and more professionals get involved with ufology. 
1977, he's kind of become the UFO community's go-to commenter on government cover-up. There were several articles where, like, a convention was in town. And there would be, like, the flying saucer guy and the abduction people. And he was the conspiracy guy. He was the cover-up guy. He was the cover-up. He wanted to be deep throat. Basically, I'm not going back to the softcore porn thing. Now, in 1977, he's quoted in an article that mentions men in black. Oh, no. A legend for another day who had been threatening UFO witnesses and calls on the media to bring Cosmic Watergate out of the closet. This one I included because it is Dateline Natchitoches, Louisiana, which is my hometown. Oh, good. It's from 1978. Was your grandma the publisher of the paper then? Well, this was in the town talk, but it would have come from Natchitoches. And my grandmother was the editor of the Natchitoches Times for a hot minute. But I don't know if she had anything to do with this story. Perhaps I should ask her. So in this article... The headline is, Friedman has a bone to pick with Hollywood. And he's criticizing Close Encounters of the Third Kind as being completely off the mark. Right, which came out in 77. And he is also criticizing the New York Times and HBO because they had put up this new series, Project UFO, and says it's hokey cornball approaches to documenting UFOs. And he says, like, the real news can be found in the National Enquirer. Oh, definitely. So, yeah. And people there were like, how can you believe without ever seeing one of these things? And he's like, I've never seen Australia either, but I believe other people when they say they have. Oh, come on. That is such a like... Australia's not real. Everyone knows that. Like that many marsupials in one place? I mean, like, have you seen a platypus? Bullshit. Bullshit, (laughs) mama. Anyway. So does he ever find his cosmic Watergate? Does he break the scandal? He cracks the scandal wide open and it's so much worse than oh literally gosh. anyone thought that literally a oh single gosh. human even the people who were there oh my gosh what is that it's roswell roswell but no one's talked about roswell for more than 30 years that was all part of the plan it was a cover-up ah. i told you so roswell is about to make its grand triumphant return in the zeitgeist good news so it's 1978 He's apparently left Natchitoches, where he's bitching about close encounters of the third kind, and made his way on down to Baton Rouge. Where we live now. Yes, true. And he's at this television station for an interview, and he's told that Jesse Marcel... Wait, that's the guy. That's the guy in the photo. That's yes, who it is. goes to the ranch and gets the material, and then takes it to Fort Worth, and he's cheesing in all the pictures with it. Yes, that's him. And he is conveniently located... In Homa, Louisiana. Now, he's retired, obviously, at this point. And Stanton Friedman, Mr. I Want to Believe, OG. And like our friend who had that convenience to cover story from Area 51, Marcel had actually become a TV repairman. Or was he? <laughs> or was he? That's what his wife thought, anyway. So, Stanton Friedman, I Want to Believe, OG, loads up his, I imagine, a Prius. Not a Prius. A Prius. A, no. no. A Prius. 1978. No, he's no that's not what I mean. I mean the other one that starts with a P. That looks Plymouth. No, I imagine it's a DeLorean. I don't think those existed yet either. Well, he had one, and trucks out to the swamps to go find this TV repairman and see if he really did handle alien debris and how much the government harassed him to make him say it. Marcel does after interviewing with Friedman seemed to say that he had been ordered not to talk about the true nature of the debris and described it as nothing 
of this earth. Now, you will notice that in all the accounts, that is the phrase that is used. Nothing of this earth. Yes, that phrase is used in almost everyone's interview. Now, the photographs, supposedly, were phony wreckage, and they were substituted for the real materials, which were much more alien-like. And among the items not revealed in the photo, Marcel claimed were wooden beams with some hieroglyphics on them that no one could decipher. Oh, no. We've already talked about the hieroglyphics. Remind our dear listeners. Toy company made tape used on the reflectors. Now, Friedman reviewed old stories about Roswell and painstakingly sought out and interviewed other witnesses and came to a very dramatic conclusion. What was it? There had been a cover-up of a cosmic water gate. He found his cosmic water gate. Oh, my God. I'm so happy for him. It only took a few years. You repeat something enough and... Man, it's just like it's true. Just put it out into the universe. (laughs) So Marcel's revelations were first reported in the National Enquirer tabloid in 1978. But they really, really took off in the 1980 book, The Roswell Incident, which was co-written by Charles Berlitz, who wrote The Bermuda Triangle also. So he is all about some conspiracy theories. For sure. And UFO investigator William Moore. And this is when Roswell becomes ground zero for the government's involvement in covering up all the alien stuff. Yes, and they base their research. They use Stanton Friedman's research as a starting point. Now, when our dear friend Stanton was out in the field painstakingly collecting his other interviews, he discovers just the Rosetta Stone of Roswell. An alien body. Oh, no. It's a man. Don't be ridiculous. That's no fun. And his name is Glenn Dennis. Okay. Now, in the summer of 1947, Glenn Dennis was an apprentice mortician at Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell, New Mexico. And Ballard Funeral Home had a contract with the air base for mortuary and ambulance services. Small town. Now, in 1989, he was interviewed by Friedman, who had found him after interviewing Walter Hott. You will recall Mr. Hot is the press agent. That's the guy that released the flying disc report. Yes. To the press. Yes. And so Hot says, go talk to my friend Glenn Dennis and he will tell you some shit. So he does. And he does. Now, Dennis recalled on a night in July 1947, he accidentally got too close of an autopsy in progress at the Roswell Base Hospital. Now, before he could learn much about what was going on, he encountered a nurse friend who was visibly upset. She had entered a room to get supplies and saw two doctors she didn't know conducting an autopsy on three black mangled bodies. One of them had an exceptionally large head, and the nurse disappeared from the Roswell base within a day. Now, as luck would have it, Dennis and Hot and one other partner made... Is he from... Out of this world? Is yeah. He an yeah. alien? He's a very secretive guy. Transparency. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Silent partner we're not going to tell you about. <laughs> anyway, they found a way to make lemonade out of these terrible lemons, this terrible burden of knowing the truth. And they founded the International UFO Museum in Roswell. Hot was the first director, and he and his wife had personalized license plates that read, Mr. UFO and Mrs. UFO. Wonderful. Now, today the museum attracts about 150,000 visitors each year, and the 
annual UFO festival, which is held on July 4th weekend, is one of the biggest tourist attractions in New Mexico. I want to go. Who doesn't? So some inconsistencies do begin to crop up. And some explanations are offered by various sources. So Dennis, for example, our friend who saw the alien autopsies. He saw the alien Or he had a friend who saw the alien autopsies. It's sketchy. It was years ago. Somebody did. There were definitely bodies. Now, in the Air Force magazine, this explanation is offered. Dennis may likewise have time-shifted and jumbled events that he did not understand, perhaps combining bits and pieces of unrelated things that happened over the spread of 12 years or so. In 1956, a KC-97 aircraft crashed near Walker, formerly Roswell, Air Force Base. The autopsy of three casualties was performed at Ballard Funeral Home, where Dennis worked, (gasps) not at the base. And it was performed by two out-of-town specialists. The bodies were badly burned, black and mangled, and shortened by the loss of liver extremities. The hospital commander at the time was a redheaded colonel, as mentioned in... Dennis's original account, named Lee Farrell. Or, potentially, it has ties to the incident that occurred in 1959, in which two pilots were injured in a balloon gondola accident near Roswell, and they were treated at Walker Air Force Base Hospital. Alien with a big head may have been Captain Dan D. Fulgham, whose head was so swelled by hematoma that he could not open his eyes, and his wife did not immediately recognize his face. Well, that is some excellent debunking of that guy's story that came out of the woodworks more than 30 years after it actually happened. Right, but then you have this pesky National Enquirer piece on Jesse Marcel, where he just lays it all on the line and proves that aliens are real. Yeah, Jesse Marcel. I mean, he he held the material. So I went back and pulled the original transcript for that interview, and there's some things that are... Definitely not highlighted, if not completely omitted. So Pratt is the man conducting the interview for the Inquirer. And he says, asking of the materials that he handled, he says, Were there any markings? Yes, there were. Some indecipherable. I've never seen anything like it myself. Oh, I call them hieroglyphics myself. I don't know whether they were ever deciphered or not. There were some markings, though? Yes, little members, small members, solid members that couldn't bend or break. But it didn't look like metal. It looked more like wood. How big? Oh, they varied in size. They were, as I can recall, perhaps three-eighths of an inch, one-quarter of an inch thick. Just just about all sizes. None of them were very long. How large was the biggest? I'd say about three feet. How heavy? Weightless. You couldn't even tell it was in your hand, just like when you handle balsa wood. Interesting. Balsa wood is actually what it was. Were you ever told not to talk about this? Oh, you don't have to be told. You just know. I couldn't jeopardize my part of the service and be criticized for what I said. The base public relations man called the Associated Press and so on. Was the idea that a flying saucer had crashed? Oh, I don't know. I didn't talk to him or read what he said. I've heard contradicting reports on this. I've heard the BR man called the press without consulting the CO, and later I heard the CO had authorized him to do it, but I haven't verified that. And then, in the Roswell incident, the 1980 book, Marcel states, Actually, this material may have looked like tinfoil and balsa wood, but the resemblance ended there. So he's sticking with that story. Maybe it just looked like it. Mm-hmm. He says, they took one picture of me on the floor holding up some of the less interesting metallic debris. The stuff is in that one photo was a piece of the actual stuff we found. It was not a staged photo. Okay, so this is all really important. We've given you a lot of information to digest here. Here's why it's important. 
So he's saying that when he handled this material, it felt like balsa wood. And felt like foil. Later, people will say this is not the actual debris. Yes, that's huge. And then he says, were you ever told not to talk about this? No. (laughs) You just don't talk about top secret stuff, right? So the stories of the threats and the, you know, violence and... Stage photos. Stage photos. Replacing the material. That seems to have come out in in aid of narrative. <laughs> you know, like it, it was necessary for the story, but it wasn't true. <laughs> ah, truth always gets in the way of the fun. So there are some other interesting characters that crop up in this version 2.0. So in the Roswell incident... The author has claimed to have interviewed more than 70 witnesses, but the testimonies of only 25 people are presented in the book. Out of these 25, only seven of them are first-hand sources who claim to have seen the alleged saucer debris, and one of these accounts is suspect. Of these seven people, however, only five claim to have actually handled the material personally, and one of them as adamant that it was not from an extraterrestrial spacecraft. So you're left with four. Four. Out of 70. Yes. Okay. And these are all interviews that were conducted 30 years after it had occurred. Okay. Well, interestingly, there are some some numbers from the time about how many people have seen and or handled this material. And this appears in the Corvallis Gazette Times on July 8th, 1947. On the front page, George Walsh of radio station KSWS, which provided the first news of the announcement, said only Major Marcel, the Colonel, W.H. Blanchard, commanding officer at Airfield, and the rancher had seen the object here. The sheriff, Walsh, reported upon receiving word that the rancher, that he went immediately to the intelligence officer at Roswell Field. So they're saying not even the sheriff saw it. But they have an account of three people seeing the debris. There were actually more than that. Yes. But not many. So Brazil's son had seen the debris. That's the rancher. As had his wife and daughter. Oh, and there were also two other intelligence officers or counterintelligence officers dispatched with Marcel to go check it out. So that's probably a more accurate number than 70. Well, and all of those people, none have come forward in this new book other than Marcel. To say that this was alien spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Now, Marcel's son, Jesse Marcel Jr., does come forward. So he was 11 years old at the time of the incident, and he gave an affidavit on May 6, 1991. There were three categories of debris. A thick, foil-like, metallic gray substance, a brittle, brownish-black, plastic-like material, like bakelite, and there were fragments of what appeared to be I-beams, On the inner surface of the I-beam, there appeared to be a type of writing. This writing was purple or violet in hue, and it had had an embossed appearance. The figures were composed of curved geometric shapes and had no resemblance to Russian, Japanese, or any other foreign language. It resembled hieroglyphics, but had no animal-like characters. Now, he says that his father brought the material home to show him before bringing it to the Air Force Base. Dude, even if he slipped out some weather balloon pieces, he did not do it before going to the Air Force Base. Like, that is just not how that happened. That did not go down like that. 
I would like to reiterate that a man who worked at Area 51 told his wife he was a TV repairman for years. Like, you were not in the business of sharing government secrets with 11-year-olds. But Marcel was an ear, nose, and throat doctor and a seismologist, Marcel Jr. And before this book came out, he had been published in newspaper accounts from Montana, where he was living at the time, all about, like, his work with seismology and his like earthquake tracking and all this stuff. And this is what he's into. This is his gig. But then unfortunately in 1980, his wife dies in a car crash accident. This is not usually mentioned in his bio. It's just something I found in the paper. And it's around the same time that all of this Roswell stuff is getting kicked up and he latches onto it and he becomes very focused on getting the word out about what happened at Roswell. Uh, It becomes one of the preeminent speakers about the topic and he fully commits himself to ufology. He passed away in 2013. But you definitely see a shift in his interest following this media attention. And, I mean, it's very possible that this became kind of a needed distraction at a very bad time in his life. One witness that you will see in a lot of these early 80s, 90s docs on the Roswell incident is Miss Loretta Proctor. Judge Proctor's windmill was the one that was destroyed by the alien... They're after the Proctors. <gasps> Proctology. Oh, no. <laughs> now, she was a neighbor of Mac Brazel, the rancher. Now, she claims that she saw the material and she tried to bend, burn, and break a piece of the material, but was unable to. And some of her testimony is said as firsthand witnessing of this material. Uh-huh. Now, the truth is... I, I will tell you right now, this this is making me penny mouth. Yeah, yeah. She's changed her story several times. Now, originally, she said she saw no debris. But after her husband, Floyd, died, who had made it clear in earlier interviews that they'd never seen any material, she mysteriously remembered things, such as the attempting to bend, break, and burn the material. Not only has she seen it at a distance, but she is playing amateur scientist with it. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. I see why you wouldn't mention that. So as interesting as the people are who appear out of the ether to give firsthand accounts are the people who give firsthand accounts and are like not taken seriously, written out, or just ignored in this cycle of narrative. Let's just say they are strategically omitted. <laughs> So one of the most interesting people, to my mind, is Sheridan Cavett. So he's in the counterintelligence court with Marcel. And he and another man, Louis Rickett, are dispatched to the Brazil property to go get this whatever. Now, at the time when the Air Force is conducting its gigantic survey of the Roswell incident at the request of a New Mexico congressman, they decide to track Cavett down and interview him. It seems like the right thing to do. Now, Rickett has passed away, and at the time they're conducting this interview, Marcel has also passed away. So he's the last one left who went from the army to the rancher to get the saucer. Now, they note Cavett was involved in the material recovery, and this is widely accepted by most people who write about the incident. But there are other claims about him that prevail in popular literature. He is sometimes portrayed as closed mouth, or sometimes even sinister, a conspirator, who was one of the early individuals who kept the secret of Roswell from getting out. Other things about him have been alleged, including the claim that he wrote a report of the incident at the time that has never surfaced. (sighs) Since Lieutenant Colonel Cavett 
who had firsthand knowledge, was still alive, a decision was made to interview him and get him to sign a sworn statement about his version of events. Prior to the interview, the Secretary of the Air Force provided him with written authorization and waiver to discuss classified information with the interviewer and release him from any security oath he may have taken. Subsequently, Cavett was interviewed on May 24, 1994 at his home. Cavett provided a signed sworn statement of his recollections in this matter. He also consented to having the interview tape recorded. Cavett related that he had been contacted on numerous occasions by UFO researchers and had willingly talked with many of them. However, he felt that oftentimes he'd been misrepresented or his comments had been taken out of context so that their true meaning was changed. He stated unequivocally, however, that the material he recovered consisted of a reflective sort of material like aluminum foil, some thin bamboo-like sticks, he thought at the time, and continued to do so today, that what he found was a weather balloon, and he's told other private researchers that. He also remembered finding a small black box-type instrument, which he thought at the time was probably a radio son. Lieutenant Colonel Cavett also reviewed the famous Ramey Marcel photographs of the wreckage taken at Fort Worth, claimed by UFO researchers to have been switched for the remnants of a balloon substituted, and he identified the materials depicted in those photos as consistent with the materials he recovered from the ranch. He also stated that he had never taken an oath or signed any agreement not to talk about this. So he's agreeing with what Marcel originally said. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also at this time, Irving Newton, who is the weather guy right. at the Fort Worth base, does mention, like, Marcel was showing him the tape on the recovered items right. and going, like, don't you think this is weird? Like, even back in 47, he was like, I don't know, man, that's weird. Yeah. So it, you can see how this could grow over time and mutate yeah. into something a bit more and than probably a after, you know, he knew it was more than a weather balloon because it was. It was a t- super secret spy weather balloon. Yeah. And he probably requested information and tried to find out more about it after the event and then was denied. Right. Because it's super secret spy balloon. Super secret spy balloon. But that's conjecture. We don't have that in front of us. Oh, wait, oh, do you know oh yeah. That's the, yeah, that's conjecture. Yeah. But I'm just like kind of thinking of his mindset, trying not to be like, oh, well, he just made it up to make money. Or whatever. Yeah, no. He, I think that there was a part of him that always wondered. Absolutely. And I can see how he like he might have talked to his son about the hieroglyphics a thousand times to the point where his son genuinely believed that he saw it. I agree, it. too. I agree with that. So even though we've kind of debunked some of Stanton Friedman and the Roswell incidents, reporting Stanton Friedman finally found his cosmic Watergate. So these UFO stories, as we've discussed, have been around for decades. Every few years, mm-hmm. there's a new rash of UFO stories. And there were definitely people, including Stanton Friedman, claiming there was cover-up, claiming all the stuff in the 60s and the 70s. Kehoe was one of them. Mm-hmm. Why did this stick so hard in 1980? Well, dear. I mean, think about what the country had been through in the last 20 years. We've had a president assassinated suspicions of a government cover-up we've been lied to about the vietnam war pretty consistently there were rumors that biological weapons were used in korea we've lived through mk ultra we have seen watergate unfold before our very eyes we've the real lo- one the real one the watergate watergate we've lost a lot of faith in institutions yes yes definitely the united states was primed 
to accept this and to believe this. You know, uh, according to anthropologist Susan Harding and Kathleen Stewart, the Roswell story was the prime example of how a discourse moved from the fringes to the mainstream according to the prevailing zeitgeist. Public preoccupation in the 1980s with conspiracy, cover-up, and repression aligned perfectly with these Roswell narratives that were being created by Cosmic Deep Throat. I said that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the story does grow and blossom over time. We get some new, new leaves coming out of our pretty little Roswell flower. You know, in 1974, a ufologist accused the United States Air Force of keeping 12 alien bodies from a saucer crash from New Mexico in Hangar 18 at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. <gasps> Fun fact, there is no Hangar 18. That's uh, what they want right, you to exactly. think. exactly. But reporters were invited to tour Building 18, which should house the Aeropropulsion Laboratory, but no UFOs or aliens. Boring. So concurrently, Senator Barry Goldwater <sighs> complained that the Air Force had denied him access to the, quote, Blue Room, at Wright-Patterson, where the UFO artifacts were supposedly stored. And around the same time, you have Hynek, who was a major spokesperson for Project Blue Book, is an astronomer who was brought on to work with the military on the project, decided to join the other side. Fun! He was now prepared to announce his conviction that the UFO phenomenon is real, and he founded the Center for UFO Studies. And he went on to serve as a consultant on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and even got a little bit part. Oh. And you'll remember that St- Staten Freeman was like, that has nothing to do with real UFOs. That's bullshit. Just the leading authority on it. Well, of course they didn't find any UFOs in Ohio because everyone knows where the UFOs are. They're at Area 51. Right. But when did we start knowing that again? Well... So we kind of talked about how they had the U-2s, they had the SR-71s, all these things going on at Area 51 in the 50s and 60s, etc. And there were, of course, the UFO reports. They saw the flying disks and things in New Mexico and the surrounding, in Nevada, Arizona, the surrounding area. And one Area 51 worker said, UFO reports made it easier to conceal what we were doing. We were the UFOs. Nicely done, sir. But. Area 51 and Roswell do not get linked until 1989. Wow. So Bob Lazar. Is that one of the Roswell incident guys? Nope. Different guy. Different guy. Cool. He claimed in an interview on Las Vegas local news that he'd seen aliens and had helped to reverse engineer alien spacecrafts while working at the base. Cool. He claimed to have worked at the base Next to Area 51, Mm. called Sector 4. Well, that's even more mysterious and spooky sounding. And he maintained that Sector 4 had nine UFOs, and he was hired to help reverse engineer the alien technology. Uh According to his account, the program began in 1979, and the aliens were actually in charge of the program. Oh, God. Okay, fine. So he claimed to have a master's in electronics from Caltech and a master's in physics from MIT. Now, of course, no records have been found, but that's, of course, because the government scrubbed him from all public records. Oh. Including all of the school yearbooks from around the country. No photo available. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Why is this blank spot in my yearbook? 
So the but, government's out to get him, obviously, because he's revealing all their most secret yes. secrets. Okay. He's actually kind of gone into not hiding, but he's not like on the lecture on circuit. Lecture. But this was in a award winning documentary done on the local Las Vegas news station. News. Oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, oh, the guy that interviewed him has won every award known to man. Cool. Like, I'm talking about Morrow Award. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about Pulitzer. And Le- legit AF, is yeah. what you're saying. And now he, he does do some UFO talking, and so very did. Cool. So we are kind of bombarded with with a lot of like documentaries, and I kind of quote here, that basically start with the word allegedly and then tell the story as if it's fact around this time. Of course. And so the king among them, chief among them, is Mr. Robert Stack's program unsolved mysteries unsolved mysteries perhaps someone is watching who can help solve a mystery perhaps it's you but this one this one's especially fun they did a two-parter on roswell big deal yes and in it they tell this story about the second crash site where there are a bunch of alien bodies discovered and i want to know what it why they showed that Second crash site. So, of course, the interviews on Unsolved Mysteries are all based on these interviews by Stan Friedman. You know, this is one of the first kind of docu-drama things that comes out that really kind of pushes into the national limelight, along with everything else we've talked about. So, in it, we've got kind of a lot of the story we've told, Mm -hmm. but along with the second crash site with the bodies. And I was like... What? And like the whole ship, like just a damaged flying saucer. Like hanging out in the desert, crashed into a random mm -hmm. pile of sand is the story. So this story is told in the Roswell incident. It's the first time the story comes out. And it's about a guy named Barney Barnett. They say that Barnett had been driving through the desert when a flash of light caught his attention. He turned toward it and came upon a crashed disc-shaped object. It was described as metallic, dull gray, pretty good size. Now, the ship was damaged, but there was almost no wreckage. And also, he saw the flight crew. Oh my gosh. They were described as small, with pear-shaped heads, skinny arms and legs, and no hair. All wore metallic-like, form-fitting silver flight suits, without buttons or zippers. Now, while on the site, Barnett said he was joined by a handful of archaeologists. But before they could do what? much more, they were in the area. Uh, was the, Indiana Jones like... No one liked the fourth movie. Before they could do much more, the military arrived, warned them that what they had seen was classified top secret, and then escorted them from the site. Mm-hmm. So the story changed a little with the UFO crash at Roswell, which was published in 1991. Okay. The Barnett accounts were mentioned, though the dates and locations were changed from the account found in the Roswell incident. In the new account, Brazel, the rancher, mm-hmm. was described as leading the army to a second crash site on the ranch, at which point they stumbled upon, quote, they were horrified to find civilians, including Barnett, there already. Everything I've ever read about the army going with the rancher says they went to his house to get the stuff he'd already collected. I guess this was really hidden well, this one. Really well. Yeah. So I'm surprised that he didn't mention running into Brazil. I mean, he's the central character in this. You think they would have asked him about that when they interviewed him initially? 
Oh, he was never interviewed. What the hell do you mean? <laughs> so Barnett died before anyone had the opportunity to And what, to did he him? come through a Ouija board and tell people this story? Well, how? Oh, they just talked to like some of his friends. Did they literally friend of a friend this shit? Yep. Oh my God. Investigation failed to find a single firsthand witness to the events on the plane. But what about all the archaeologists? Well, they... Didn't exist? Abducted were, by aliens. No. So there was archaeologists in the general area. Uh-huh. And they've interviewed them and they had no knowledge. Except one guy. Oh, yay! I'm and so there's excited. There's this one guy, Robert Drake, who told of a trip into the Plains area in the summer of 1947. He said he didn't see anything himself, but he did speak to a cowboy who told him of the crash of some kind of spacecraft somewhere out on the plains. Now, according to Drake, he'd been making a preliminary survey of the Batcave. I told you this was all about Batman. Anyway, continue. With the other archaeologists. And on the way back to Albuquerque, they stopped at the ranch. And Drake, while searching for land snails, talked to a cowboy who told him of the crash. And on the way back to Albuquerque, they all talked about it. But all the others deny ever having that conversation. What about the land snails? Do they remember the land snails? I don't know. Okay. Drake no longer remembers who that mysterious cowboy might have been. I feel like he's Sam Elliott in The Big Lebowski. Oh, he definitely is. He definitely is. Or an alien. Or Oh, oh. I was going to say maybe it was Brazil. And he just told him, I found some shit in the desert. And that could have happened. That could have happened. But I like your alien idea. I like the ghost rider. What about, oh, me too, or a jackalope? It could have been a cleverly disguised jackalope. A very big suit. I know it seems like we are poo-pooing this, and it's probably not a lot of fun if you're a UFO enthusiast to hear like the kind of crowning holy grail of the UFO stories, just like, meh. But... I think it, they picked the wrong story, kind they of. They did, because there's just too much. I just, there are other stories that make me go, oh, really? A lot more than this one. There are. There definitely are. But then you look at some of the things the government's done while handling this case, and you just have to go like, guys, come on. So the investigation that was conducted by the Office of General Accounting at the request of New Mexico Congressman Schiff in the 90s reported that Many of the Air Force organizational records covering this time period were destroyed without entering a citation for the Governing Disposition disposition Authority. Our review of records, control forms showing the destruction of other records, including outgoing RAAF messages from 1950, supports the Chief Archivist viewpoint. So, the records are gone. And they don't have any records of why the records are gone, and no one signed off on it, and they don't know what happened to them. I knew who has it. God. The smoking man. You're right. Maybe that was the cowboy. From (laughs) X-Files. But there were some complicating factors. Like, you know, the Air Force became its own branch of the United States military Mm -hmm. in September of 1947, so records would have been shuffled around, back between Army and Air Force, etc. And also... From the 509th's official history, which is like the journal they were forced to keep about all the things they did on the base, notes that this month's is scant because we don't have a stenographer anymore because they're yeah. like pulling people to go Air Force over there. Now, there are no records of the crash debris ever being deposited at right field. That's all destroyed. That's all gone. No it's one knows what sketchy. happened to this it. It's very sketchy. Um, it's very sketchy. So what you're telling me is that this entire episode... We could have been just disinformation agents 
mm-hmm. from the U.S. government just recounting the story they set right. up. Towing to the party find. line, yes. And if that is the truth, I'm waiting for my paycheck. Yeah, really, guys. And yeah, there's one more thing. No. <laughs> there's one more thing. There's this FBI memo. It's the most often downloaded document from the FBI vaults. Wonderful. And it is going from the Dallas FBI office to the Cincinnati FBI office. And it says, Redacted, further advised that the object found resembles a high-altitude weather balloon with a radar reflector. But that telephonic conversation between their office and Wright Field had not borne out this belief. Uh Uh-oh. Disc and balloon are being transported to Wright Field by special plane for examination. Information provided this office because of national interest in the case and the fact that National Broadcasting Company, Associated Press, and others are attempting to break the story of location of disc today. So there, this is a very troubling memo to me. When I try to reconcile this whole story in my head, this one drives me a little crazy because it's like, uh, said it was a weather balloon, but that's not, you know, our conversation does not bear that out. Hmm. Also, the press is on to us <laughs> and we've got to ship it there. And you have the people back in Texas saying, we're not sending it to Ohio. No, nope. sir. No way. It's going to stay right here because it's not a big deal. And that's how conspiracies happen, Jacob. <laughs> right. You have that kernel, the kernel of truth. You know, this is a true document, a true document where they are saying, we're not 100% convinced that this is just a weather balloon. And that might mean anything. They might be like, this doesn't look like a weather balloon. What's this weird scientific equipment on here? It's super spy stuff. Or it could mean something completely different. And then you have the army officers in Fort Worth saying, we are not shipping it to Wright Field. Hey, Wright Field. <laughs> and it's just knowing that you don't know. Knowing that you can't know, the disappearance of the records, the extensive exhaustive studies that still don't have a piece of that material to show us today and pat us all on the head and say, see, we told you. So even in a case like this where there's so many contradictions and goes dormant for 30 years and then comes back and people's memories change and turn and twist and those flowers on the tape become hieroglyphics, and President Jimmy Carter seen a UFO, and we just don't know what to believe. I think it comes down to whether you want to believe or not. Whichever side of that coin you land on, there's a story for you. So many stories. And this is only half the story. We didn't even, like, talk about aliens. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do that next week. Next week. So stay tuned for the rest of the story. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.